Have you ever felt like this was your last chance? Like this thing that you wanted to do, it's like one more chance. Like you've tried it before, you've tried it six times, seven times, eight times, nine times, and someone says, this is your last chance. Have you ever wondered if anyone cared about you? Have you ever been all by yourself and you're walking through something and it feels like no one else knows about it and, and there you are, I mean, you're losing sleep at nighttime, you're losing weight over it, 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 it carries with you all day long and, and it seems like everything else is going perfectly and it's running 110% yet when you get home, it's like there's your thing, it's like it seems like you're the only one battling it. Have you ever wondered if someone sees that or even God sees you over there in the parts of our world. There's these great things going on, yet you sometimes you say, God, I'm here. Do you see me? Have you ever felt like your past mistakes keep you from jumping into something new, something different? Have you ever felt like, well, I want to go there, but it's kind of scary. It's like, if I, if, I, if I join that or if I'm part of that, then that means i got to be honest, and I'm afraid to be honest because it might mean that I have to tell them about this past. And so with fear of somehow the enemy saying, you're going to judge, you'll get judged, don't do it, you don't step in. Have you let age keep you from making decisions with fear of? Have you ever just wondered if, Anyone sees your plight in life, it's like, does anyone know what I deal with every day as a single mom and as a single dad? Does anyone know what it's like to be unemployed? Does anyone know that I stood in the line seven different places and got interviewed rejection after rejection after rejection? Have you ever just felt hopeless? Yet, in that moment, out of nowhere, there comes this word of hope. This injection of hope into your life. And it's like, wow, someone does care. Well, here's an example of that. Take a look at this. When you walk around the grounds of Gainesville State School, you'll see just about everything you would on any other high school campus. There are students, teachers, a computer lab, and a gym. Except here, the students are convicted criminals. It's an incarceration facility for kids that have uh, violated the law. Each day starts at a tiny dorm room they call home and continues marching from class to class, abiding by a strict schedule. In fact, the one thing that makes them feel like kids again is football. I'm just like, you remote my own campus, you know what I'm saying? Everybody want to play on the football team. Just to put on a Tornado's uniform is a reward, not a right. You must have good behavior and good grades. Not to mention, every game is played on the road, but it's worth it to escape on Friday nights and enjoy a small piece of freedom they gave up. But each week, there comes that constant reminder of who they are and what they've done. They don't treat us as a regular person in the world. They treat us like we're just some alien, just from somewhere out, just out of nowhere. I mean, they look at us like animals in a cage, like we don't deserve a second chance or another opportunity to be something in life. After hearing the ridicule and losing eight straight weeks, the Tornadoes were once again on the road, traveling to play private school power grapevine faith for the first time, who had moved up a division. Their head coach, Chris Hogan, had a game plan in mind, and it had nothing to do with football. We were going to show them that in this country, if you make the right decisions, people will get on your side and support you. And it doesn't matter what your background is, 
you can make it. In a selfless suggestion, Coach Hogan sent out an email and requested his fans, his players, parents, do something so out of the ordinary in the football culture. He asked them to cheer for Gainesville State. These young men will not have any fans outside of the faculty from their own school. Their parents will not be there. I want some Lion fans to sit on the visitor side and cheer for the Gainesville team throughout the game. I thought, okay, this is, this is cool that Chris wants us to do this, leading up to it. But getting there that night, it was so easy to transition from being a fan for the Faith Lions to a fan for the Tornadoes. You know, the idea of, uh, of giving uh, and just being there to support those kids, those young men that have never had that before. So for the first time, the always-on-the-road Tornadoes would feel as if they were at home. And as kickoff approached, it was obvious something was different. It looked like they thought they were at the wrong end of the field because they know they don't have any fans. And we were just looking. I just looked. I just kept doing my plays. But I seen how they were split up, but I figured they just didn't have enough room on their side. I want y'all to line up in line. They make, they're making a spirit line. I like, say what, coach? What you say? Can you beat that? And uh, he said, they're making a spirit line for y'all to run through. I like, yeah, that's what's up, sir. That's what's up. When it happened, it was just, it was dynamic. It was one of the most unbelievable things I'd ever seen. When I ran through this, like I felt like it was just like some like angels or something. That's all, that's all I felt. Cause I was just running through it as fast as I can. I just feel the wind rushing my face. That feeling of being unleashed lasted throughout the game, and so did the cheers. We had a penalty like the third play of the game, and I heard booing behind me. I turned around, and it was the, the great man fan. I remember when I was making like a play, I made a chocolate, and people were yelling my name. I'm like, I don't even know these people. <laughs> They were just like ours that night. I, I can remember rooting for their little quarterback, and I felt like he belonged to me. Our kids were their kids, and their kids were our kids, and all kids were the same. It wasn't enough to lead the Tornadoes to victory. As expected, Grapevine Faith won 33-14, and the Tornadoes finished the season 0-9. But it didn't matter, because for the first time in a long time, someone was in their corner, and that alone was worth celebrating. I was like, hey, Alan, this, this is going to get close, man. I don't care. I don't care if we lost tonight, man, because I was feeling good. I like, felt like we were in the Super Bowl championship game or something. Like, we won that. I mean, winning, like, in our heart, spiritual-wise, I mean, we won. I've, I've been in state championships of different kinds, and there's nothing was like this. Nothing. Isaiah and the rest of the Tornadoes will never forget the feelings they had on that night. And while it didn't erase the mistakes they've made, it showed 14 teenagers that regardless of the bad things they've done in their past, there was reason to look ahead. I cried. <laughs> when I, when, when after the game, I went back to my room, I cried. I think that your, your family are the only ones that love you. God ain't the only one that love you. Other people love you too. This is what I was hoping and praying would happen. I hope that it gave them hope. I see the world in a different way now. I mean, I'll just see, like, I'm the victim no more. So much love because, you know, I came from a broken home family. So, I mean, having all that love, it just, just rose my spirits up. They got to be kids that night. They got to be a teenager and experience Friday Night Football in Texas. Awesome or what? To see that kind of response, just... I love when I see people receive hope in hopeless situations. And I, I, I love when 
we as Christ followers give the hope that we've received and we don't hold on to it like it's ours only to keep. And like I said last week, good news isn't good news unless you pass it on. In that case, these boys, young men, were hopeless and now they had this family around them that cheered them on and made them realize that their past wouldn't stop them from being who they need to be. Sometimes hopelessness comes in some of the, 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 the most strangest corners of our lives. And sometimes it comes and you really wonder, is it just me or is it really this bad? Does God really see me? And, and sometimes you need it so badly and it comes like out of left field. Just there it is, just right out of left field. And it's like, that's exactly what I needed in a time of hope. Have you ever been so hopeless that you wondered, if you could even go on? Have you ever been so hopeless that you wondered if your marriage could make it? Have you ever been so hopeless that you wondered if you could ever move from the place that you're in? Have you ever been so hopeless in your sickness that you wondered, will it ever get better? Have you ever been so hopeless that you would resort to something that you never thought conceivable? Well, let me show you a picture of of, of a group of people who thought and were willing to do and did things because they were hopeless that probably up to this point in time, they had never conceived it before. But hopelessness can drive you to do stuff like this. Grab your Bibles and turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. 2 Kings chapter 6. And if you need a Bible, hold your hand up. Ushers will put one in your hand. And if you don't own a Bible, take this Bible home. It's a gift from Grace Community Church. But turn to 2 Kings chapter 6. And we're going to read verses 24 through 34. 2 Kings chapter 6, and we're going to read verses 24 through 34. We'll see a picture of hopelessness in the Bible where it was so hopeless that people resorted to something that that human beings hardly ever or should ever consider, ever consider. Stand with me and let's read it out loud together. 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 24 through 34. Read it out loud with me. Ready? Read. Sometime later, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, mobilized his entire army and marched up and laid siege to Samaria. There was a great famine in the city. The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver and a quarter of a cab of seed pods for five shekels. As the king of Israel was passing on the wall, a woman cried to him, Help me, my lord, the king. The king replied, If the Lord does not help you, Where can I get help for you? From the threshing floor, from the wine press? Then he asked her, what's the matter? She answered, this woman said to me, give up your son so we may eat him today. And tomorrow we'll eat my son. So we cooked my son and ate him. The next day I said to her, give up your son so we may eat him. But she had hidden him. When the king heard the woman's words, he tore his robes as he went along the wall. The people looked and saw that under his robes, he had sackcloths on his body. He said, may God deal with me, be it ever so severely, if the head of Elisha, son of Shaphat, remains on his shoulders today. Now Elisha was sitting in his house, and the elders were sitting with him. The king sent a messenger ahead. But before he arrived, Elijah said to his elders, don't you see how this murderer is sending someone to cut off my head? Look. When the messenger comes, shut the door and hold it shut against him. Is not the sound of his master's footsteps behind him? 
While he was still talking to him, the messenger came down to him. The king said, this disaster is from the Lord. Why should I wait for the Lord any longer? You may have a seat. As you can see, this is a desperate situation. So desperate that moms are getting together and saying, we're hungry. We don't have food. There's, it's a parched land. There, aren't, there isn't food in the cupboards. There's none in the markets. It's expensive even if you could buy it. We need to do something for my family. Imagine as a mom. Imagine going to another mom and saying, listen, it's so desperate that we got to eat one of our kids. This was total desperation. So the passage says, one of the moms killed her son and they cooked. Imagine cooking your child in a pot. This is how desperate this situation was. Meanwhile, the king of the land gets word of this, puts sackcloth on as he walks on top of the wall, and he hears this woman cry out. And meanwhile, he says, listen, if this is from the Lord, then we need to put the Lord's messenger to death. Elisha, the man of God, the prophet during that day, he knew that he was in trouble. Because the king said, if he lives another day, then, then if he's in my presence, his head will be lopped off. Elisha recognizes that when people are hungry and angry, they're resorting to not only eating their own, but they're going to get rid of anything to do with God. So Elisha realizes that he's in trouble. Meanwhile, Elijah has to stand up in the midst of this, this hopelessness. And by the way, his people were facing it too. He has to stand up and get a word from the Lord to say, hey, wait a minute. There's a good word from the Lord. But this group of people say, why should we listen to you? If the Lord is allowing this, then we don't want anything to do with him. Elijah surfaces. The king is ready to take off his head. And so you have an opportunity for hope to emerge in the chaos. Look at chapter 7. Look how this unfolds. Chapter 7 in verse 1. Elisha replied, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says about this time tomorrow. A seah of the finest flour will sell for a shekel. And two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of, look, look, at the city gate. Now think about this. Just prior to that, they were selling donkey heads for outrageous prices. Just the day before, these bags and packets of flour that were available had astronomical prices. And so Elijah says, hey, wait a minute. Just want to let you know, tomorrow you'll be able to buy those bags that you're paying a hundred times as much for. You will be able to get it for hardly anything. And they're like, yeah, right. Elisha probably tries to inject hope into this hopeless situation, but no one is listening to him. Look what he says next. Look at verse 2. The officer on whose arm the king was leaning said to the man of God, Look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heaven, could this happen? Paraphrase Jim Brown. He's saying, fat chance. It's not happening. Read on, then it says this. You will see it with your own eyes, Elisha said, but you will not eat any of it. So picture, the king is leaning on this servant's shoulder. The servant speaks to Elisha and says, 
there's no way. Like, is God just going to open up the floodgates and like chickens are going to drop and turkey and you're going to take your bags out and catch Pop-Tarts? Come on. We've been living in total desperation. We've been living in hopelessness. Do you think your God's going to do that? The thing I know your God allows is to cook babies and eat them. So Elijah is speaking a word of hope, yet the agents to receive it are rejecting it. So here's what has to happen. In the midst of hopelessness, you have to ask yourself this question. Do I believe that God is who he says he is? Do I believe that he is willing, that he is able to do for me what the Bible says? When I am homeless, when I am out of work, when I am, have this physical ailment on me, when, when my child has run away from God, when my husband just left me, when my wife left me, when, when this horrible thing happens, when I'm unemployed, can I still believe God or do I say, why, why me? Listen, you can trust God because he is good on his word, yet This messenger said, that's not going to happen. So Elisha says to him, by the way, dude, let me tell you, it'll happen, but you won't be able to participate in it because you didn't believe. You see, we must trust God. We must believe God. When God says something, believe it. The servant chooses not to believe, yet God is being mocked by, by, by these people who hear the word of Elisha. I'm also reminded of this. In the midst of the most dire, straight situations, we can stand in the midst of hopelessness and say, listen, there is a God of hope. Listen, there is hope. Even though it looks like it in the physical, even though physically it doesn't seem like there's an answer, my God is able. Where does that kind of faith come from? Well, let me show you. Hold your finger here and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Paul, in the midst of his letter to the church of Corinth, gives this little passage that kind of jumps out. And in the midst of his conversation, he says this about hope, which is a very powerful statement about hope, is what, is what Elisha understood prior to him writing this. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 12. Paul said, therefore, since we have such a what, we are very what? Look at it again. Therefore, since we have such a what, we are very what? Where does our boldness come from? It comes from the hope that's in us. It comes from us reminding ourselves of the principles and the truths and the promises of God's word. He says this, Paul says, since you have this hope, the Holy Spirit that lives in you, since you have this relationship with Jesus, since you have that, you should be bold in the midst of hopelessness because you can bank on God's word. The minute we begin to retreat from that, the minute we begin to believe the lies of the enemy is the minute we find ourselves spiraling even more in hopelessness. So listen, don't believe the enemy's word. This is what I love about this, this campaign we're going through right now. This is my hope campaign. By the way, over 500 individuals, of which many were family units, sat in on training on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday and said, you know what? We're going to bring hope to our community. We're going to invite people into our house for a meal. We're going to show this DVD by Billy Graham, and we're going to see God take that hope and change this community. Is that awesome, by the way? Can't wait to see what God's going to do with that. Hope 
pushes us to go for broke, even when it doesn't make sense. By the way, think about what's happening. God's people are in a land of famine. The people far from God, the king's people, are in a land of famine. People are cooking and eating their children. Elisha's head's about to be lopped off. It's a pretty big deal. And then in the midst of this large issue that's happening, in the corner, there are these four men. Like, these four men that appear on the pages of Scripture. It's like God is saying, hey, even though these great things are going on, there, I want you to know that I see you. I see everybody. I care about even single people that are by themselves right now, and they wonder, does God hear me? Have you ever considered for a second this, this thought? That while everything is happening in our world, God cares individually about your needs. God sees exactly what you were thinking last night. God counts the number of hairs on our head. Now, think about that for a second. All the stuff that's happening on our globe, God is able to count the hairs on your so, Now, how many do I have now, God? I mean, he even knows that I pulled two or three. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He cares about the fine details individually. And he's about to show it in the midst of four people who are called lepers. All this is going on. And over here in the land are four people that no one cares about, that no one comes within 50 feet of them, because if they got within 50 feet of them, they would be unclean too, and they would be ostracized. Four men who are hungry, four men who have a flesh-eating disorder on their body, four men who haven't had a hug in years, four men that are just as desperate as the whole countryside. They want food too, and God is about to set them up. God is about to make them agents of hope. It is a beautiful picture of how God even cares for the overlooked and the underprivileged when this grand thing is happening in our world. Look at verse 3. Watch how this unfolds. Chapter 7 and verse 3. If I were to write this, I would say, meanwhile, while all this other stuff is going on, verse 3, there were four men with what? What's it say? Leprosy. At the entrance of the city gate, They said to each other, why stay here until we what? If we say we'll go into the city, the famine is there, and we will what? If we stay there, here, we will what? So let's go over to the camp of the Arameans, surrender. If they spare us, we live. If they kill us, then we what? I mean, sounds like some good options, doesn't it? Stay here, we die. Go there, we die. Maybe if we go over there, we might live, but we'll almost die. So let's go for the almost selection. I mean, you talk about hopelessness. There weren't good options on the table. So they surmise in their minds, if I stay here, I'm going to die of starvation. We could go there and die, but there's a chance if we go there. If there's a chance if we go there that they might just help us. So what do we got to lose? Death, death, almost death. So they took the almost death route. Meanwhile... Elisha has this king and his people who want to lop his head off because of famine in the land. God is about to use these four lepers to bring about hope to hopeless people. Proverbs 13, 12 says it this way when it comes to hopelessness. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. In other words, have you ever been so hopeless like, just feel like, man, it's just everything I try, it just 
just doesn't work. I mean, it just, and I keep trying to overcome the sickness in my life. And it's like, man, why go on if I have to live the rest of my life like, and then out of nowhere, this longing fulfilled, this thing that you've been, it's been keeping you awake at night, this thing that's causing you to not sleep, this thing that's stressing you out. And out of nowhere, this longing that's in your heart is fulfilled. And all of a sudden you become this tree of life. And it's like, whoa, what happened to that person? And we're about to see this take place, but it's going to happen beginning with four lepers. A sick heart can really destroy a group of people. God loves us so much that he would never overlook anyone, anyone. Now, don't ever lose sight of that. Sometimes you might think, well, how come, how come we, we acknowledge these people? And how come everyone knows about that prayer request? Just because they're always talking about, what about me, God? Let me tell you, God sees your pain. God sees your hopelessness. God cares just as much about you as he does about the 50 who know about that person. Think about that for a second, what that means to us. Let me give you an example of, 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 for me, where it was just a real, just I, this issue, this, I needed hope in this situation. When we were building this building roughly seven or eight years ago, we were down at the middle school. We were meeting there in a portable church for two years. We met in the middle school. We sat up, set up on Sunday mornings. We had a great group of volunteers that made it happen. And while we were at the middle school for those two years in portable church, we began a capital campaign to build this building. We believe that God laid the vision out there that this is the direction he wanted us to go. And so we had this campaign called Here We Come, and many of you made this happen. In the midst of that building campaign, I began to closely look at the finances. And by the way, I never looked at the offering and cared about the amounts until I became a pastor. It's like, didn't matter. I mean, someone else's problem. I just come and show up and worship and give. And, and we did. Ann and I tithe and, and, and we gave. In fact, our goal is to give as much to local churches as we do to the government. Why not? So we, our goal is to give 15%. And that's what we give on Sundays to Grace Community Church off of, our, off of our gross. That's what comes to grace. But in the midst of that, I'm watching what's taking place. And I'm thinking, wow, this offering's coming in. At some point, we're gonna have to owe this because when you build a building, there's this thing called a construction loan. And a construction loan holds off all these charges, holds off all this interest. And finally, when you get to the end of that, when the building is complete, you go into the traditional loan or mortgage. And I knew that it was coming. I knew it meant, boy, we're gonna get hit with this large mortgage payment, thousands and thousands of dollars. And I was looking at what was coming in. I was thinking, Boy, God, you're going to have to do something big. And so I would go to bed at night thinking about that. I would wake up in the morning thinking about that. I would carry that into the office thinking about that. And for months on end, I carried that weight. I mean, I was supposed to carry it. And I remember moments like, Lord, are you sure? And I remember praying to him, Lord, I don't want to make you look bad. God, I believed in this vision. I believe this is the vision you had. But Lord, you're going to have to come through or we're going to look stupid and we're not going to make you look good. In the midst of that twirling and almost hopelessness, I found myself in Ohio at a minister's meeting and I saw a man at a table that I knew and I went up to him. I knew he was in a building campaign. And I walked up to him and I said, hey, Rick, I said, "Uh, what was it like for you when you went through the building campaign here in, in, in the Columbus area? Was there ever a time that, and I told him my story, was there ever a time you wondered? He said, oh, yeah, Jim. 
And in the closeness of this room, while all this other stuff was going on, people talking, I was sitting at the table with this man, and this man took this syringe of hope and just stuck it into my arms. He spoke this phrase that I'll never forget. It's not profound. It's not poetic. And he said this, if God gave you the vision, he will supply the money for the vision. I remember sitting there, and it was as if I was sitting at this table. I remember, it was like, it's like I just shook off this, this concern, shook off this weight that I've been carrying. It's like, and it was almost like, bam. And I remember thinking, God, thank you. In the midst of all that's happening in this world, this one message of hope spoke to me in such a way that it removed all the hopelessness and the concern that I had up to that point, wondering if somehow God could do what he said he could do. Let me give you another example how God cares individually. This week, as a result, just like you, by the way, and I've been in conversations with you, God has obviously has my heart on lost people, and I've been thinking about lost people, and you have too in our community. And the stories, go to My Hope Grace Community Church, that page, and like it, and put that in your newsfeed on Facebook, and you can catch up. There's already stories of people sharing their faith. So this week, I, I, I was thinking along those lines, too, and it felt burdened, and I joined in. And Billy Graham has a, has a reading plan that's on Ute Version, which is great. By the way, you should be part of that. It, it really encourages you. It keeps your heart on thinking about how to minister to people far from God. And so I was reading that. In the midst of reading that, there was a song at the end of this that played. It has a YouTube video that you watch. It has a devotional, some questions you answer. And I played this video, and God was like, he spoke to me, and I felt this deep concern for lost people. And so I just decided... and. I just decided I would write about it. So I I grabbed my computer and my laptop, and I just wrote this poem. And I felt like I'm going to write this thing, and I'm just going to post it on Facebook. and Just maybe it'll minister to someone. So let me tell you what God did with this. Here's what I wrote. It's not fancy. I'm not a poet, but this was from my heart. And I wrote these words and posted on Facebook. Even before I was a pastor... I love Jesus as my master. So, to my friends, I say, I long for you to find the way. I've done my best to never stray from him because life is miserable with all the other thems. You witness him carry me through toils, snares, and trials. Yet never once did he leave me alone for a while. You see... I long for you to know him too, personally, up close, intimate, through and through. To choose otherwise and refuse to believe would break my heart and cause me to grieve. So, as I enter the latter days of my life and enjoy the closeness of my family and wife, I offer you the gift that gave me hope far beyond my wildest dreams. For life without him will leave you hopelessly short of the eternal seams. So, as I end this gentle plea, would you consider contacting me and hear the heart from which I write so that you can too be blessed with eternal might. So I posted this, and, you know, that was my heart. I just, it's it's not fancy, it's, 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 it's average, it's adequate, it's, but it was from my heart. I'm driving down to Winona Lake on Friday night with my wife and my son Isaiah. We're going down to take Josh out for supper. It's his birthday. 
And on the way down, my iPhone, bloop, bloop. And normally when it makes that sound, for me, it means there's a Facebook message. So I turned up my phone and I pressed on it while I was driving. So I did it. So for those of you who want to judge me, go ahead. And I was, I was, so I read it. And it was from this guy that I didn't even know. I mean, in fact, he said something like this. I'm not sure how I got connected to you. I'm not sure how it happened. Short and sweet, he said this. I read that what you posted today, that was for me. I was like, whoa. So I responded back and asked him this question. What part of that was for you? And so he went on to say this. He said, there was a time in my life when I followed God. He said, there was a time in life when I was involved in the church. There was a time in my life where I was married. There was a time when I believed that God was who he said he was. There was a time in my life, he said, but I've been so far from God. And he said this. He said, I just had a friend lose their life. And he said, it occurred to me, I wonder what will happen to my soul. So I gave him some information. All that to say this. I was... Just sharing from my heart. Hopefully it would contact someone. Meanwhile, I don't even know where this guy lives. I don't know him from Adam. All I can see is a picture on Facebook. All I know is that somewhere there was this guy in a desperate situation. This guy who had just lost a friend. This guy that needed some hope. And God somehow took what I, this, this, this average poem that I wrote. And he wanted me to write it for this dude here. Come on. That's awesome. So that out of nowhere, this dude could get some hope. That's what God is doing right here. These four lepers think, is there a God? I mean, my best option is almost die. And God is about to set them up for something incredible. Watch what happens. Look what happens in chapter 7, verse 5. They know they're going to die, so their best choice is, hey, we'll go over there and almost die. And then in verse 5, it says this. At dusk, they got up, the lepers, and went to the camp of the Arameans. When they reached the edge of the camp, who was there? For the Lord, look what it says. For the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear the sound of chariots and horses and a great army. So that they said to one another, look. The king of Israel has what? What's the word? Hired the Hittite and the Egyptian kings to attack us. So they got up and fled in the dust and abandoned their tents and their horses and their donkeys. They left the camp as it was and they ran for their what? Picture this a second. There was no one coming. God turned on his iTunes account, horses and chariots. And they hear this, oh man, we got to get out of here. The, the, the Israelites have, have, or the king has hired the Hittites. So they're running out of this camp for their lives, it says, scared to death. Meanwhile, guess who's heading over there? <laughs> the four lepers. They're coming. They think, that's our best chance. That's our best chance to get some food. And as they're coming over there, God is pushing everyone out so that when these lepers come, they got anything they want, old country buffet in every tent. There it is. They ran for their lives, it says. Picture four lepers. Just, just do it. 
flesh hanging from them, more alive than they've ever been. Can you imagine as they're getting closer, as God's watching this, thinking, I <laughs> can't wait to see this one. He's watching them, and the closer they get, because they don't know, they're thinking, well, we got a chance. Maybe they'll accept us. And when they get there, there's no accepting. They are the camp. They are the owners of all the property. Look what happens. Read on. Look what happens. Look at verse 8. The men who had leprosy reached the edge of the camp, entered one of the tents, and ate and drank. Then they took silver, gold, and clothes, and went out and did what with it? Hid them. They returned and entered another tent and took some things from it and hid them also. Then they said to each other, what we're doing is not right. Picture, just picture a second. They hadn't had food. They hadn't had friends. And now they come to a camp and they have all they want to eat. All you can eat buffet. And now they're trying on jewelry. Picture them. They got necklaces hanging from their necks. <laughs> look, look at the bracelets. I mean, you talk about hope. And you know why? Because they stepped out in faith and said, we could die here in our hopelessness. Why, 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 why? Or we can trust God and step out and believe he's going to come through. Let me just say it this way. An ounce of hope can press us forward even if we face a lack of resources, an immovable system, an opposing group or individual, an intimidating circumstance, a crushing physical or spiritual burden. If we step out in faith because of this hope, it's amazing what hope can do. And by the way, we're supposed to be the agents of hope for people. You see, when you tell them what Christ has done for you, and you tell them that, listen, this isn't it. You can have Christ the rest of your life, and he'll never leave you for sake. This world needs to hear about the hope of Jesus Christ so that they leave their spot and find him. Look what happens. Look how this ends up. So they're eating, they're hiding gold and silver, and then they realize what we're doing is not right. Look at verse 9. And then they say this, this is a day of good what? And we're keeping it to ourselves. Listen to me. You heard me say this last week. We have the hope of glory as our Lord and Savior. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. This is good news. We're not supposed to keep it to ourselves. Even four lepers knew that, who of all people should be a little selfish, wouldn't you think? Read on with me. This is a day of good news, and we're keeping it to ourselves. If we wait until daylight, punishment will overtake us. Let's go at once and report this to the royal palace. So then it says this. So they went and called out to the city gatekeepers and told them, We went into the Aramean camp, and no one was there. Not a sound of anyone, only tethered horses and donkeys. And the tents left just as they were. The gatekeeper shouted the news, and it was reported within the palace. Just stop. I love jump. I like to jump into scripture. I like to be these gatekeepers standing there, and then looking out across. There's these four lepers with jewelry hanging from them, yelling, "Hey, no one's there! Hey, the airmans, they all ran away. Would you believe the voice of four lepers? These men." were coming back, they had become the agents of hope 
because they were given hope and it was too good to keep to themselves and they gave it away. Yet, whose report are you going to believe? Would they believe these lepers or would they check it for themselves? Hope never disappoints us when it's from God. A hope realized can impact thousands. Look at verse 12. Look what happens. They give the news. The gatekeeper hears it. He yells it out to his people. And then it says this in verse 12. The king got up in the night and said to his officers, I will tell you what the Arameans have done to us. In other words, he didn't believe the report. They know we are starving, so they have left the camp to hide in the countryside, thinking they will surely come out, and then we will take them alive and get into the city. He sees it as a setup. Now, if you go there, just know they're hiding in the bushes, and when we come, they're going to encircle us, and they're going to cut our heads off. They couldn't believe this report of hope from these lepers. Look at verse 13. One of his officers answered, Have some men take five of the horses that are left in the city. Their plight will be like that of all the Israelites left here. In other words, they're going to die. Yes, they will only be like all the Israelites who are doomed. So let us send them to find out what has happened. In other words, we might as well check it out. So, verse 14. They selected two chariots with their horses, and the king sent them after the Aramean army. He commanded the drivers, go and find out what's happened. Verse 15, they followed them as far as the Jordan, and they found the whole road strewn with the what? And the what? Of the who? They had thrown away in their headlong flight. So the messengers returned and reported to the king. Then the people went out and plundered the camp of the Arameans. So a sea of the finest flour was sold for shekel, and two seahs of of barley sold for shekel, as the Lord had said. Now listen, they're going up US 15 on the way to the Aramean camp. And all along the way, as as they're going there, was all this stuff that was thrown. They threw all their packages. They threw all... They were in such a rush because of the sound of armies they thought was coming that they knew we better lighten our load. And as they're running, they're throwing everything away. Oh my goodness, it's just awesome how God intersected in their lives. Look what it says in verse 17. Now the king had put the officer on whose arm he leaned in charge of the gate. This is the dude that said, you know, that's not going to happen. What's God going to drop? Turkeys and chickens and the floodgates are going to drop them. And Elisha told him that you will see it, but you won't be part of it. Then it says, now the king had put the officer on whose arms he leaned in charge of the gate, and the people trampled him in the gateway, and he, what? Just as the man of God had foretold when the king came down to the house. It happened as the man of God, Elisha, had said to the king, about this time tomorrow, a seal of the finest flour will sell for a shekel, and two sayers of barley will sh- for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. The officer had said to the man of God prior to this, Look, even if the Lord should open the floodgates of heaven, could this happen? The man of God had replied, You will see it with your own eyes, but you will not eat any of it. And that is exactly what happened to him. Look what it says. For the people trampled him in the gateway, and he what? So the question today is this, for us first. Do we believe God? 
Do we believe the reports that are in his word? When you read God's word, do you believe the promises? Do you believe the promises that are here when you're in a desperate situation, when it seems hopeless? Do you believe that God sees you? Do you believe that God cares? Do you believe that meanwhile, while all this other stuff is happening over there and it seems like everyone's attention there, do you believe that God sees you as a single mom? Do you believe God sees you as a single person? Do you believe God sees you as a single dad? Do you believe God sees you when your child leaves? Do you believe God sees you when you're desperate? Do you believe God sees you when there aren't any answers? Yes, he sees you. And the reason you know that because the word of God tells us but we gotta believe it these four lepers experienced it firsthand and this passage says this in verse 20 look again and that is exactly what happened to him the man of god says you'll see it but you'll die we must believe the word of god we can bank on god's word because he's good on his word If God says he'll never leave us nor forsake us, listen to me, bank on it. If God says I will work all things out for good for those that love me, bank on it. If God says I choose not to remember your sins as far as the east is from the west, bank on it. If he says he's always going to be with you, bank on it. If God says that you do not have to end your life this way, I'll give you an out, bank on it. If God says he will come again and take us to be with him, Bank on it. No matter where you find yourself, God is alive and well. Bank on it. That's what we have to offer. Listen, there are people in this community that need to know that. And as the leper says, this is too good for us to keep to ourselves. Please, take the message of hope and give it away. And it might be someone who's sitting in their house who just lost a friend and wonders about their soul, who's far from God, flips on the computer, and through his news feed, Jim Brown. And he reads a poorly executed poem, and he says, that's what I need. Oh, Lord, help us today. Help us to know that it's not over, no matter where we're at. Help us to be givers of hope. And God, when you intervene, help us to tell our stories. Our world needs hope. May we be those messengers. Please, God, use us. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next week. God bless you.